Welcome. You're on Deep Background, the Kansas City Stars podcast. I'm Scott Cannon, a reporter at the paper, and we're, we've got a bit of a bonus edition for you here today. I'm joined by Maria Torres, and she's going to talk with us about the rather difficult reporting work that put together a in-depth look at the death of Jordano Ventura. Um, she, along with um, Vahe Gregorian and Jill Toyoshiba, went down to the Dominican Republic, where he died in a car accident and did the very difficult work of figuring all that out. So welcome, Maria. Thanks, Scott. Um, I wonder first if you could sort of walk us through what it, how you all reported this. You, had, you did it in a relatively short amount of time, but sort of walk us through what it took to get the story. Um, well, a couple of weeks before we went down there, start, we started making contact with his friends, his family members. Um, we got in touch with his legal wife and really went, we based our reporting down in the Dominican off of what we already had here. Um, so just tried to set up appointments to try to get people to talk to us in person. Um, we never could get uh, to, to speak with the wife, Maria San Giovanni, in person, but we did um, at least get in touch with his friends, his childhood friends like Orlando Sorrente and Abel Padilla. Um, and it was a bonus, actually, to be able to talk to Marisol, Yordano's mom, because we actually had no idea if she would actually talk to us. Um, his his friends had actually told us that she hadn't really, she hadn't even opened the door for them um, to talk in the last few weeks at that point. So to get her um, was it was incredible. I, I just remember like sitting with Vahe at the stadium that Yordano like grew up at. We were like sitting on the, um, I guess the cement stands um, and just like game planning. And we were like, all right, we're going to go talk to Yordano's grandpa, but we don't really know what we're going to, if we're going to be able to get to Marisol. So we're going to have to try to make this interview with the grandpa as extensive as possible, just in case. Um, and at that point, like I said, like we, we really weren't very hopeful that we'd get Marisol to talk to us. But when we were done with Raul Hernandez, he um, just gave his daughter a call and she said, all right, as soon as I'm done serving lunch to my grandkids, I'll come over there and talk to them. And 20 minutes later, there she was, and we spoke with her. And um, yeah, that's, I mean, like I said, we had laid some groundwork over here, but we went into Las Terrenas kind of not sure if we would get um, Yordano's mom to speak with us. Um, other than that, like we, we set up a driver through someone that I know in the Dominican, um, and he was able to like get us from the San, San Jose de Ocoa, which is where the festival was, all the way up to the um, crash site. And from there, um, you know, we, we went back to the to Santa Domingo. But that, that too, was just an incredible experience, just good, getting into San Jose de Ocoa, where it's like a little town and it, there's lots of, it's like a tropical, like, you know, you've got all the palm trees and a nice little plaza. And there's that, like, business that he was at, um, or at least in front of. So going from there to probably like maybe 10 kilometers out where the pavements just stops and it's just a dirt road all the way up was just kind of ridiculous for us to like comprehend because it was a curvy road. It was uphill and these like, I mean, it's just dirt everywhere. And like, at the time, I mean, that's the only way to go up, but we just couldn't believe that this was the, this was the route that he took on his last night. Um, and it was probably a good like 10 to 15 kilometers of just like dirt until you get back on pavement. And you think like once you're on the pavement um, in this place called Rancho Arriba, um, you think you're home free because you're only 
probably like 40 minutes away from hitting the the main country um, or the the main highway on the country. Um, but it's still it's still going uphill for a little while, and it's going back downhill. There are lots of curves, and there are lots of steep slopes. And um, you get around the the bend from Arroyo Malo, which in English translated in English means bad stream. You get around this curve, and it was a steep curve. All, I mean, not a steep curve. Sorry, a very it was like a hairpin curve. Um, he got past that, and then he went up a hill a little bit, and then hit the like the top of the hill and. That's about where he would have lost control of his vehicle, and a little further down was where um, the the crash site was. So it's just it's kind of incredible to like think. Well, he made it past what seems like the toughest part. Like he got past the dirt road and he got back on the pavement, and he had gone around that hairpin curve, and somehow they got gets to the top of this hill and goes on a steep slope down, and just couldn't. Just couldn't maneuver it. And so you guys drove that route. We've seen the video, which people can click on on the website. Um, but you do get a sense that, in part because now you're starting to go down, and and you all wrote about he's in this jacked-up Jeep um, with a high center of gravity. You can imagine he, 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 he barely makes it through that one hairpin, but after that, things are out of control. Did, could you get that sense there, or you're, you're sort of expressing disbelief that he made the one turn but not the next yeah I mean honestly it's just it seemed like once you get past that hairpin curve I mean if he he got past it so it doesn't make sense like he got momentum to come climb continue climbing up that hill and then got to the top of it and it starts to slope back down and that's where things must have gone wrong and I mean you could see on the pavement there are like skid marks from the brake or from the tires and um off to the side like once you're down the drainage ditch and right before you get to the guardrail there's like the the imprint of the tire track there too um so yeah i mean it had to have been past the curve and on that hill when he was coming back down that something went wrong either maybe he just had too much speed and couldn't break fast enough and plowed through that guardrail or i don't know that one's the hard one to that, that's that one's a hard one to understand right so let's uh, step back a little bit further and set the stage. So a lot of people don't really have a picture of the Dominican Republic in their mind. It's this Caribbean island nation. What I think like the, the western third is Haiti, French, and the two-thirds to the east are the Dominican Republic, which has strong uh, Spanish ties. Um, you speak, you're a Spanish speaker, and that had to be invaluable on a trip like this. Um, but it's it's certainly not as wealthy as the U.S., but it's not abject poverty, right? Mm -mm. So describe, try to give some, somebody a sense who doesn't know that part of the world, the, the level of development there. Yeah, um, so I guess we can start with San Jose de Coa. And it's hard for me to really describe because this is the kind of, this is the kind of thing that I grew up around. So, I mean, there's, I mean, uh, I grew up in Puerto Rico, okay. or at least you know a little bit of my life I spent in Puerto Rico, and um, it's just it's kind of the same thing. It's like a tiny little town square, and um, I mean the the streets are very narrow. I mean, I guess the streets are narrow, but everything's like made out of concrete. the The development, as far as like the construction goes, it looks pretty modern. I mean, I'm sure there are houses here and there that aren't like you know what what you would expect here in the United States. Um, 
And you can see some of those in but the electricity video, Electricity is ubiquitous. Yeah, electricity. People have indoor plumbing mm -hmm. as a rule, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, one thing you can't really do is uh, you can't, like, flush toilet paper down the toilet. Um, so that's <laughs> – maybe that's one, like, one of those inconveniences. There's one actually on our trip on that unpaved part of the road. Um, you would see little – like, people would have stands where you could buy um, gasoline, like they would have like little jugs of gasoline out because it was so far to the near the okay. nearest gas station and the motorbikes that I mean you could probably see those in the video too. Um, there are lots of motorbikes there and that's what how people get around. So I mean they need gasoline. Um, so those were like those. There were some remote stretches that's for sure. But like the places that we were we were at like San Jose de Coa is pretty developed. Um, Las Terrenas is like plenty developed too. Um, there's not, I think we, I think on our way there, maybe we got the impression that the roads in Las Serenas weren't that great, but no, they were, they were standard roads there. Um, very, very crowded because it's a tourist town. So I, I think that probably adds to um, the development in that area. Okay. Um, as far as like how, you know, nice it looks. All right. Well, let's talk about the drive a little bit more and then we'll move to sort of the backstory that underlies all this. He's at this festival which is, describe what kind of, you know, festival we're talking about. Is it a place where generally people go to have a drink and listen to music, or is it something more cultural than that? Um, so the festival is called Las Patronales de Ocoa, and it was, the intention of it is to celebrate the Dominican's patron saint, which is La Virgen de la Altagracia. Um, but it's not a religious event or anything like that. It's just more of a celebration. Um, so you can tell a bit from, of a street party. Yeah, or? it's really more of a. It's, like, it's almost like a block party. Okay. Um, and they. It seems like they closed down the city square and the streets surrounding it. Um, and from pictures of the festival, like official pictures of the festival, you could tell it was just packed, and there were there were lots of little food stands and um, tents and that kind of stuff. And Giordano and his friends, Giordano Ventura and his friends, had lots of. They brought their own vans that had speakers in them, and they would play music for like their part of the, I guess their um, group of people. Um, and I know there was a concert there that weekend too, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so it's it's really just it's. It's a festival more than more than it is a religious experience or anything. And we think he was hanging with friends mm -hmm. and leaves there about what time? We uh, around three, about three in the morning. Okay. Um, and he, and best case scenario, how long would the drive be to where we think he was going? I think it was about two and a half hours okay. from San Jose de Ocoa to Constanza. So maybe maybe I'm going to get there before dawn if things go well, right? Exactly. Um, and. Obviously, he doesn't, but we it, at some point, it, it we've got evidence that he he felt like he was lost, right? Mm -hmm. He was using GPS, and, and that wasn't working out. And then he sent some sort of message to his wife along the way, or am I mixing up my facts? No, you're, you're pretty much on the right track there. Um, so he had been in contact with his wife throughout his journey. Um, and the last time they were... Texting or calling? Calling. Okay. Um, I'm not sure about so it texting. could have been hands-free, mm -hmm. wouldn't necessarily have been all that reckless. Correct. Right? I'm, so we're not sure if there were any texts involved, but there definitely were some phone calls made. And it's um, almost the, the, just from the description and the, and the work that you guys have done, mm -hmm. e even those of us who have, hate to admit it, looked at a text maybe at least, this isn't sort of the road where maybe you would, it seems implausible Right, because you're really driving. You're not just sitting there in the car holding on the steering wheel. You're negotiating 
turns constantly. Exactly. It's not just a straight shot, that's for sure. Like you have okay. to you have to pay attention. I think that's probably the most revealing part of it is like it, it's hard to be distracted on that road. Plus, so it'd be hard to picture him, for instance, just because the age that we're in, mm-hmm. that he was texting at this turn because as you talked about just a second ago, he he just went through a really tough turn. So the idea that he would have been texting at least seems uh, highly unlikely. I agree. Okay. I'm with right. you on that. Although, I mean, we obviously don't know what happened, right. but it would seem like the, you know, that that's the most cautious way to drive is to not be distracted. Now there's one thing, however, we don't know like what cell phone company he was using or anything like that. But when we were down there, our cell phones were on the orange network. Um, and a good bit of that drive, there was no signal for orange. Okay. Um, there's another company I think called, um, Cotatel or, I don't remember, Glado, I think, was the real, the old name um, that had signal the whole time. Our driver had both both um, both companies, both, both cell phone companies. Um, so that's one thing to keep in mind, too. Like, we don't know, like, what provider he was using, but it's possible, like, he might not even have had signal um, a good bit of the journey, which okay. might which might have led to him getting lost at some point. Okay. Um, now, um, from from what his wife told us, he was calling her, and the last conversation they had, he thought that he had arrived in Constanza already, and she described that Constanza, just the route to Constanza or in Constanza is very similar to the route that he was on, um, you know, mountainous, lots of fog. It very well, it might have been, maybe he thought it did look like where she was where she was staying, um, but she did not see him out on the road, so he... Um, he hung up the phone with her to get his GPS back and make sure that he was on the right track. Um, and then she never heard from him again. Okay. Um, so let's talk about her a little bit. What, what comes through in, in your piece is that there was certainly almost a rivalry of people who cared about him or, or were deeply involved in his life. He, he was had grown distant from his mother and the family he'd mostly grown up with, right? And had struck up a, a relationship with this woman. Help me out with the pronunciation. Um, Maria San Giovanni. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's it's it looks like an Italian name to me. I, yes, she's of Italian descent. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, who he came to know, <laughs> interestingly enough, because she was dating. Um, is it Jose or Jose Batista? Jose she said Batista. she was dating. She said she was dating Jose yeah. Batista, and um, she. Jose Batista and Yordana Ventura, you know, had a famous falling out on Twitter. So for the non-sports people out there, Jose Batista is a heck of a ball player for the the Blue Jays. Mm-hmm. And it was when the Blue Jays were in town for the uh, – it was for a playoff series, wasn't it? They did come in town for the for the playoffs. And the that's ALCS. when they met? That's when they met, yeah, it was several months later. But the reason they even began speaking to each other was um, the fallout they had on Twitter at the end of July or beginning of August of 2015 – um, the and fallout who who had the Jose Bautista and your Donaventura okay. did. Um, I don't remember like the specifics of what caused this fallout, but um, was there a bat flip involved somewhere along the line? Very likely, very <laughs> likely. Um, the but I know that Yordano was defending his team, and um, but it was sort of Twitter trash talk exactly, about it was sports. A spat. It was a little spat, um, but she reached out, or she didn't reach out to him. She said that he. Um, that she followed him on Instagram, and he sent her an Instagram message saying hello, and that's how they began um, communicating. And it was several months later during the American League Championship Series um, in Kansas City that the two of them met in person. And and 
they didn't just meet in person. They quickly, it seems, quickly became an item. Yes, they and, quickly and she, she, she sends up, quickly sets up shop in Kansas City or begins to live here, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. And they are an item from that point on and get married. Uh, End of January. Okay, same year. Mm-hmm. I guess, yeah, the, a couple of months later, so 20, early 2016. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then, but we, she also talks about, you know, within a few months, things are going awry, and it, it sort of comes to a, a bit of a head when they're at spring training camp in Surprise, Arizona, and they get this uh, odd visit. Exactly. There's this weird, um, in the police report, she called 911 and said that um, her father had sent two men to their door and threatened to kill Giordano and had asked the, her to leave the house. If I'm recalling correctly, this is what the police report said. And um, she talks about her father as being a politically connected guy back in the Dominican. Exactly. And, that and the motivation for sending, the ostensible motivation for sending these intimidating guys, we don't have it. We don't really have any really clear idea on, on what was happening. But Was there some sense that the, that her family was upset that she was with him? or there, That's kind of what it sounded like, exactly, that there was some, there was, someone was upset and this threat was just, it was never substantiated by police um, and it doesn't seem like it was a real but it's hard to judge, right? The, the the neighbors don't recall hearing gunshots. The mm-hmm. cops find no gun casing or shell casings, so it's a little weird. Mm-hmm. But it the cops certainly took a report, and then yeah, is it a couple of weeks later that he's in the hospital? Yeah, and we're not sure like the timing of it, but on. But the, it's still down in surprise. It's still down in surprise, in the and the camp. initial police report was on I think March fifteenth. And um, the police were did a welfare check on March 19th, and following in the next in the next couple of days, Ventura was scheduled to go on a side trip with the Royals to San Antonio. I don't yeah, want to San say. It. I think it was San Antonio. Um, you say side trip. That's where they kind of split the team up, right? Correct. correct. Team A goes this way, and Team B. So more guys get more at bats and such. Right? Exactly. That's what the point of that is. But he doesn't go. He had been scheduled to go, but he did not go. And um, you were able to confirm that he was in the hospital, correct. right? He was. In she the hospital. says it was. There was some suicide attempt involved. Mm-hmm. It's. We don't really have anything else to corroborate that. So That's right. What we've got is that. Mm-hmm. And then maybe it's like a month or so later, they're back in Kansas City, and again, she reports that his forerunner has been vandalized, and somebody um, has scratched in there, we'll be back. How do we say that in Spanish? Volvemos por ti. And that's how it was carved in the thing. Mm -hmm. But again, she's the one who finds and reports this, right? Right. She said, I think in the report it said that she had left the car unlocked two days before, um, and, you know, then they came back down to the car and saw that, um, saw the vandalism, saw the what vemos por ti scratched in there. Um, now, Ventura never pressed any charges in this case, so there was, a, there was never any further follow-up on it. But Right, and, and very, the Royals and MLB were mm-hmm. made aware of it, took an interest of some sort in it, mm-hmm. um, but uh, again, there was. The, don't the cops at some point say there, there doesn't appear to be a credible threat, or am I imagining something there? She's wondering. I think, yeah, yeah, no, I'm pretty sure that's what the cops do say in there. Okay. Um, that there was no credible threat. Well, at least he didn't press charges. Right. So, so. It, again, it's a mystery. 
combined between the whatever happened at somebody coming to their home in in um, Kansas City. Well, no, in, in surprise, surprise. and and Ver- Ventura is on board with that having happened, mm-hmm. right? With the co- he tells That's the cops right. it happened, so it's not just her word there. That's right. Um, but you know, MLB sends it. They, they've got sort of a special a person who looks out for Dominican players in particular, mm-hmm. right, gets involved. Um, and then in the months after, and, and then he has a rocky season. Yes. And he and she They, they separate. Of, they separate in July, and she goes back to the Dominican. Um, and that from after that point, they're, they're really not um, – they're not in a tight relationship anymore. They do continue to communicate, and um, up until when he died, at that point, they had been um, trying to reconcile. She said for several weeks. Okay, and her relationship with him all—I I messed up the chronology here—but mm-hmm. follows him drifting apart from his immediate family, his 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 mother, and and, and that. Correct. Cadre, that, right? that all really coincided. Um, and that's a little vague as to what split them, other than the mom says, that's, you know, money was not good for his character in a way. Yeah, well, at, when um, Giordano signed his extension right at, what is it, April 2015, um, she came... His extension meaning his now he's got big money. Exactly, lots of lots The world of sees the a line. future for him, and the Royals are investing big money mm-hmm. in that. He had just come off pitching that 2014 World Series, Game 6. Um, they were they were very high on Giordano Ventura, and that contract was like a way to reward him. And his mom came in for um, his signing, and she could kind of tell that something was a little awry there. And she, she warned him, make sure money doesn't change you. And he said, no, no, it won't change me. Um, but in her eyes, I, she, in her eyes, it did. Um, of course, the subtext of this, and these are all good people, but when, when you instantly have it, when you have a lottery winner in the family, we know historically that that creates all sorts of rivalries because there's, there's fame at stake, there's wealth at stake, at stake. He does come back and bails out um, his mother's father's, his maternal grandfather's business, right? That's correct. And actually, I believe in the time frame, it happened in the last three years, sometime in the last three years. Um, so we don't know for a fact when um, he bailed he bailed out the, the family business, but he did. And his grandpa talked about how that was the best thing that Giordano has ever done, ever did for them, and he'll never forget that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's he definitely continued to care for his family and care for Las Terrenas based on the things that we heard. Um, it was just that, you know, there was some kind of something amiss in the relationship with his mother um, that, you know, that drove them apart. Um, I can't say for a fact what it was, but you, like in the story, we do we do quote her and she says that um, his wife is at fault for all of this. Um, we really got a sense, well, like you said, like when you have like an, an, a lottery winner, all of a sudden there, there are things that are bound to change. Someone, everyone wants a piece of you. And, um, it seemed like this past off season, it just made more sense to him to stay in Santa Domingo, which is very close to where the Dominicans, the, the Royals Dominican Academy is. Um, and would that have been closer out. to the wife or the mom? Um, or separate it would have been closer to the wife. Okay. Um, 
but yeah, he stayed there to train throughout the week, and he would go back almost every weekend to Las Terrenas to, um, you know, at least at least be in his hometown. Okay. She did say that she hadn't seen him since Valentine's Day 2016. This is the mom. Yeah. This is the mom exactly, and I mean, so, it so had almost, almost been a, a year. year, right? Um, and I'm. I've, I guess I've got the chronology entirely screwed up on this. Let's, let's look at the guy who has. What was interesting to me was that about your story is I, I felt like I, I tend to dismiss a player's on-field behavior from the guy off the field because you know, you know enough athletes or you, you played sports, you know, that some people just behave differently in the heat of the moment and others. It almost feels like the, this is the case where maybe that – hot-headed guy we saw on the mound at Kauffman Stadium, there's some roots to that. He drops out of school at 14, partly because he got dissed by a teacher, right? That's what we understand on that story, So, so yeah. imagine a kid who grew up in the Dominican Republic, only made it through school to the age of 14. By 17, the Royals uh, have signed him to a contract, which is worth significant money by Dominican standards, right? right? It was 28 I think it was twenty eight thousand American dollars. So that's, I mean, it's still it's still twenty eight thousand American dollars. But to them, it's definitely a lot. And there was a cute story in there. We didn't get to use the exact um, the exact quote, but um, his first his first coach, his first youth coach, um, Giordano, went back after he signed that amateur contract and gave him five hundred pesos, which amounts really to maybe nowadays would be maybe like. Ten twenty dollars. Okay. Um, but to him, it meant a lot. And he was like, "I know it's not." And this is what Yordano told the coach. The coach told us. This is us, a twenty-eight thousand dollar Correct. Like so his seventeen-year-old Ventura um, said to said to the coach, "I know it's not a lot of money, but maybe you can get yourself a couple of beers with this." <laughs> so um, you could tell that he was very like tuned in to. He was. He seemed like a very humble young kid. Right, and he actually struggles a little bit after being signed. And then, then the potential begins to emerge. He's um, he pitches a little bit in the season before the Royals go to the World Series, right at the majors. Correct. But then that first year that the Royals go to the World Series, I'm losing track. 2015. 2014. 2014. Mm-hmm. Okay, That's, they won in 2015. That's right. I'm getting old. <laughs> um, but he, he he and he pitches Game Six in the World Series, right? And they win ten to nothing. And he's what twenty what at that. Point. God, what year is that? That's 2014. He was 20, 23. Okay. And a millionaire. And a million. Well, he was about to be. I don't think he was yet. Okay. It was after to, that. Okay. So it's after that season he gets the extension. He becomes mega rich, goes back, and um, shortly after that he's he's tied up with the wife and, and the drama begins to ensue. Um, it, it, the, and, and you talked to... Um, Victor Baez, who's right. sort of the Royals' Dominican ambassador of sorts, is that a fair way to think of him? I think so, yeah. And he talks about a a, a, a likable, volatile kid who maybe got a little too much too quickly. Correct. Um, this is what he told us. Like, like we've already established, he was a, he dropped out of school at fourteen. He went to work for his he went to work for his grandpa. He tried to he tried to help support the family. And he came out to the Dominican Academy, which I think what they told us was at the time there wasn't a direct route built between the Dominican Academy and La Serena. So it would have been about a four to six hour drive 
um, comes out to the academy and impresses the scouts and they and they sign him and um, you know they have to they have no choice but to give him some they have to give him structure because again this is a kid who dropped out of school whose father left the family when he was young um, his family would definitely come and visit his mom and his sister and his grandpa they would come and visit um, but there is a lot still to like teach him and that's one thing that Victor Bias said is like when you're when they're young you could teach them a lot so they really wanted to make sure that they had Ventura as solid as possible before they sent him out to the minor leagues and out to rookie ball I should say um so then then he goes and says and then after that it just it happens so fast for him he climbs through the minor leagues end of 2013 he's a September call-up um, the next year he starts, he starts 2014 with the team, or I, that might be wrong. Don't quote me on that, but he, at least he gets a full rookie season in with the, with the Royals. He goes and pitches the world series. He goes back, he signs a contract extension. He's the, he's the number one starter. He wins the world series. Um, and then 2016 happens and there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot for him to, you know, juggle here. Right. It's trite to say careful what you wish for because mm-hmm. it comes up so often. But it, there's no doubt that <laughs> a, a, a guy from modest means of, of sub-modest education um, is loaded with money and fame at, you know, by the age of 24. Exactly. It's just incredible to think how we, any of us might have reacted in that situation. Um, and he ends up with this, this blinged-out Jeep um, on which the airbags apparently appear to have not have uh, activated, yeah, um, which will be a story coming down the road. Um, let's just w- one last thing. So, walk us through. Uh, people don't understand, I think, the, the the trickiness of doing foreign reporting. On this last trip, you guys didn't have a whole lot of time. You, you do it a lot of advance. People think all our work is is when we shout at people coming out of a courthouse. <laughs> well, it's definitely not like that. Well, um, I'll just like give you kind of like a day by day what we did. But um, how much, did, yeah. given the people idea, how much you had to do to set up before you even leave town, you've done a lot of work here, right? Correct. We've spent spent hours talking to people. Um, Some of the harder work, really. Yeah, we needed to make sure that we had at least leads on people we could talk to in person. Um, the cops were the trickiest because they were not able to give us much information over the phone. So that was, I think, was probably the inciting factor more than anything is that we couldn't have gotten accident report details if we hadn't gone down to the Dominican because they, they were very, um, they were just tricky to talk to on the phone. Um, and there were actually really some things that they couldn't, that they couldn't have shown us or we couldn't have found out if we hadn't gone down there. Um, we managed to see photos of the Jeep um, from at when, when they, I guess they took it to the scrapyard and just the, all the damage that was done. We, we were able to see post-accident, uh, post-crash photos, um, how the guardrail was destroyed, the skid marks, the pieces, of, the patches of ground that the car had like hit. Um, you know, we were able to see all of that. That's stuff that we would not have been able to get from here. And the tricky thing is, in, in- going outside the U.S. and what we're, where we're accustomed to doing reporting is you don't know quite know what is going to be available and what it takes to get from point A to point B. Correct. You're flying in the dark a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you'll get a little more than you might have gotten in the U.S. simply because people look at things differently. But other times people feel a little more comfortable blowing you off. Did, did you uh, 
run into any instances once you were down there where, had you been stateside, you might have been able to get something that you couldn't get there or vice versa? Uh, I don't think we had any issues as far as, like, getting the things that we wanted when we were there. Um, the only thing that was that we were not able to do was meet with the wife. She said that she had several appointments that she had to get to, um, so we weren't able to meet up with her, but... Which um, had to be maddening to you. Oh, it was. <laughs> it definitely was. She had a, a you wanted to talk to her and get more detail, and B, you wanted to get photos, you wanted to get video. It's exactly. We wanted to get, you know, show everyone who, you know, she was, but um, sadly that couldn't happen. But after that, like, we got down there, and actually I think that it was it helped to actually be able to say, hey, we are in the Dominican, will you please meet with us? Um, from then on, people were very like, all right, well, you made the trip here, let's go ahead and, like, set up an appointment. And you're the Spanish speaker of our group, <laughs> yeah, I right? Am. So you're negotiating a lot of this. I am. Yeah. Um, so there was a, I, I think even Sunday, the day we arrived, I was still like all over the place, like, oh my gosh, here are the people that we still need to get in touch with, and they're not responding to me. What am I going to do? Right. Um, and you weren't there that long. You got in Sunday, went out when? We left Thursday afternoon. Right. So that's a lot of reporting. You've got to navigate this road. In one piece. <laughs> Thankfully um, in one. We did have to go have to go up, and I'm going to shout out to Jill on this one because um, on the way down, we actually like drove right past the accident site. We thought it was in town, not outside of it. Uh, um, and she had her camera going at that point. Um, something happened with the camera. She was not able to get that video. So we, had to, we, we went back up um, at that point because we needed to see what the actual accident site was or crash site was, and um, we got video then. Went back down. Jill realized she needed to get another, another, like, another clip. So we went back up, <laughs> and then on her way back down, she realized that she needed to get a GPS-enabled um, photo. <laughs> and we're like, Jill. <laughs> Thankfully, that time no one had and to get out of the car. It's not easy to turn around on this road. It wasn't. Either. You had to go all the way down the mountain. So it was like a good. Um, it would take maybe 20 minutes to get you know from what from the crash site all the way back down and back up to the crash site okay. so yeah it wasn't it wasn't super easy even though it was maybe a couple kilometers okay and you would hire did you, you hired one driver we did we hired one driver who Anybody also else? doubled as a buddy guard okay. <laughs> he was very great um when we were in San Jose de Ocoa Jill was um was shooting the, the um the the business that was kind of like the cornerstone of the festival um, and there was a little, uh, a, a young kid who like saw Jill from across the street and kind of like came running up to her. She had all of this equipment on her and she was fine. She was just standing, um, where she was, but this kid like was really close to Jill. So, um, our driver was just like, you know, get off her back, like leave her alone. It was, it was a, it was a funny little experience there. There was a tiny kid. He was like, he always told us, he was like, the people I'm most afraid of are those tiny kids because they're unassuming and you're, you're, you're not going to believe that they're going to, you know, do anything to you, but they would be the first ones to snatch a phone out of your hand. Right, right. So uh, last thing we got lingering in, and I'll note that it's about noon on Tuesday, mm -hmm. um, is whether we're going to get some toxicology do we know? Are we optimistic that we'll ever learn anything? Um, we're we're trying really hard. The thing the thing about the toxicology report is that it's not a public document, and this is different from the Oscar Tavares case because in the Oscar Tavares case there was another person involved in the in the crash, um, so there was a public investigation. Whereas in another this ball one, player who died in a traffic accident. Yes, yeah, a Cardinals player. Um, in this case, and also in the Dominican, but in this case it's just Jordano Ventura, and there has not been. Um, 
there uh, an investigation into the crash has not actually been opened like a public investigation. So um, the attorney general actually um, isn't aware of where they are in the process with the toxicology on that. Only the um, forensic scientists are, and the forensic scientists are only obligated to give that information to family and lawyers. Okay. So our only our only bet here is to get it from those sources. Okay. And which you and others are pushing on. Yes. <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much for talking through this very interesting story. It's been great to have you on Deep Background. Uh, those still listening out there, hope you'll subscribe, give us a review, um, and we hope to have uh, another regular Deep Background podcast uh, on our usual day Wednesday. Anyway, thanks for tuning in. <laughs> <laughs>